This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Monday was a big day in the province as Premier Doug Ford announced that areas outside the GTHA, Niagara and Windsor-Essex would be moving to stage three economic opening on Friday, yesterday. Was that the right decision? While filling in for Libby Snymer, I was joined by our Zoomer squad to get their reactions ahead of the official announcement by the Premier. Peter Mugrich, senior editor at Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media, and Marissa Lennox, chief policy officer at CARP, a new vision of aging. It's quite clear we're trending in the right direction. Um, insofar as there has been a continued decline in new cases. Um, of course, you don't want to undo that trend, but I think we've been fairly cautious and, you know, certainly compared to parts of the U.S., we've been cautious in moving forward. And so I think they're at a point where they feel it's okay to move forward into stage three. Now, I do understand this includes allowing workplaces to, for the remainder of workplaces to reopen, and there will be sort of a further relaxing on public gathering. But I can tell you that I, I know a couple brides that are anxious about getting <laughs> married in the fall and are looking forward to this announcement, hoping that they might be able to have more people at an indoor wedding. David, what are your thoughts? I think it's definitely time to uh, move to stage three. I agree with what uh, Marissa faced. I guess I agree with what Marissa said. Um, I think we're going to have to... Um, keep an eye on. I think the approach they've taken is we move forward, but we watch it and we're ready to move back to the previous stage. But I also think it's important to know that we really, there isn't really, uh, we're kind of caught between two plans here. I'm a little worried about, are we trying to stop uh, all further infections or are we really just making sure that our hospitals aren't overwhelmed, which was way back when the original strategy. And mm-hmm. since that time, there's been all kinds of anxiety about new cases, new infections, not new infections. But in fact, the the uh, fatality rate is significantly down. So I think if we stick to the original plan, uh, we've reached uh, that benchmark. Peter, your thoughts about stage three? Well, you know, I, I would have been a lot more optimistic about it if um, what's happening in the States had been different. And you, you just look there and you see all these... Um, states that are reporting a record number of cases, and, and they all reopened uh, rather quickly. And so so that's sort of tempering my enthusiasm about the reopening. But like David, I mean, it has to happen because, um, you know, these small businesses which have been closed down are in big trouble. And, the you know, they, they account for million, 8 million jobs, I think, they account for before the pandemic. And if, if we don't get that um, economic, you know, uh, that machine rolling again soon uh, on all cylinders, um, 
you know, there is going to be no economic recovery. And yet, you know, a lot of people would argue that it is on the backs and putting the lowest paid workers at risk, of which there are many Zoomers out there working in retail jobs. So it's that balance, right, of reopening the economy responsibly and yet taking care of your people as well. I understand the workers are, are, you know, they're right out there in the front lines and exposed and everything, but... um, you know, there's going to be nothing to go back to unless we get it started soon. Uh, uh, I, as well. I also want to point out that one of the things I've been struggling with every week is that the the numbers are and the, and the inconsistency with what the numbers are and how they're reported and what they mean and how they play into the original strategy continues. In the United States, it's a, Peter's right, it's a hot mess, but... They have not seen a surge in the fatality rate, number one. Number two, the Centers for Disease Control came out and said they think maybe 60% infection rate, like way higher than reported, and the bulk of it asymptomatic. Is that even true? Does it matter? Is okay. there, it's all over the map. And so I think we've got to go and be prudent and say just because you're reopening doesn't mean you have to necessarily subject yourself to 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 all that risk. Marissa? Well, but hang on, because hospitals in Texas and Florida have seen a massive surge. Hallway healthcare is more rampant than ever. There was a uh, an interview with a Texas doctor that said, I have five young patients in need of ICU and who will die if they don't get it, and I only have three available beds. So, you know, our greatest fear is coming to coming true is they're not being enough beds, they're not being enough ventilators Mm -hmm. for people who actually need it. So you want to mitigate that as much as possible. The thing about the United States, though, is many of those states did not take incremental reopenings. They kind of just blanket opened the world. Bars were packed. Beaches were packed. Whereas Ontario has been, you know, this very phased approach and even phase three, I have no doubt that it'll, it won't be a, you know, a complete lift of all restrictions, but rather it'll be a way in which people can get back to the office, but safely. And there will still need to be, you know, physical distancing uh, restrictions. People will still have to wear masks indoors, these sorts of things. And I think that that's the right approach. Our Monday Zoomer squad, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We continued our conversation on Monday about Stage 3 reopening by getting reaction from Tony Alenis, President and CEO of the Ontario Restaurant, Hotel and Motel Association, as well as Dr. Ray Dionandon, Epidemiologist and Associate Professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. There are a handful of metrics that we like to look at. I'm not sure which ones the province are looking at. I suspect they're looking at the incident cases, which is the number of new cases per day. And as you noted, that's been holding province-wide at under 150 for several days, which is great. We also like to look at this thing called the reproduction number, which is the average number of new cases that an old case produces. And we like that to be one or less. And surely the last few days in Ontario, it's been about 0.8 to 0.9. That's fantastic. Okay. And lastly, we look at the percent of, of, the case, of the tests that come back positive. And the last few days, it's been 0.5% or so. That's fantastic. So those three metrics tell me we're trending in the right direction. 
Are a lot of people who are asymptomatic and may not have COVID-19, um, are they going to get tested more so now than, say, a month ago? Absolutely. And what's happening as we lower the criteria for who gets tested is we have lesser symptomatic people entering the data stream. And that gives us a false impression that the severity of the disease is diminishing. That's not true. The disease is Uh, exactly the same. It's just the kinds of people we're detecting are different. See, now that's an excellent point. And uh, that information has been twisted in the United States by the president who said that that 99% of COVID-19 cases are harmless. This is an ongoing problem with this epidemic. It's an epidemic not just of a disease, but of misinformation and misunderstanding. And it's really made the job of public health communicators like myself quite difficult. What is happening with the virus right now, doctor? In Canada, we're doing very well. It seems that the elderly, uh, those you know over 70 or so, are better protected than they were earlier on. And so the shift in demographics has been towards the younger set. So in Ontario, I think uh, 60% of cases now are amongst those 40 years and younger. So it's not that the virus has changed target. It's just that who is vulnerable has now changed. Is the unpredictability of the virus the same as in the early days of the pandemic? So in other words, we don't know how an individual patient will react. We know more now than we did before. Uh, And we know that it seems to depend a lot on underlying conditions and even on age. So, as you know, children have these these manifestations of symptoms that we didn't expect. We know a lot more now, but there's also a lot we don't know. I want to get back to Tony Elenis here, who's also with us, CEO of the Ontario Restaurant Hotel and Motel Association. Uh, Tony, it's an understatement to say that this has been an extremely challenging time for restaurateurs. Uh, How has the whole patio reopening and the extended patios, how has that, um, I guess, given some reprieve to owners of restaurants? Well, opening the patio is the first stage, and some are opening and realizing we have to start creating consumer trust. Some are not realizing the tough fiscal model in the new norm. Uh, Some uh, are giving job to the employees, and I hear that. Uh, And yes, some just want to work and manage the operations. It's an industry that you love to be in it. And, And as much as it sounds theoretical, that's true, but there's not much sustainment with just operating patios, mm-hmm. especially with the vulnerable weather uh, that, that uh, entertains us uh, every year. And what's happening with takeout? Have the takeout numbers gone down as the patios have reopened? We are not going to see takeout uh, numbers fluctuate. Uh, I think the future is that e-commerce in general, including takeout, will only grow. And some are doing well, but many of them are not. And most of the restaurants in Canada really are not equipped to do takeout. And they're not, they're not structured that way. Uh, and, and those are the ones that are suffering and have been devastated. But, you know, I agree. Safety is the number one uh, priority. And no one wants to open during this new norm without safety protocols in it. But the industry is ready. 
Tony Alenis, president and CEO of the Ontario Restaurant Hotel and Motel Association, as well as Dr. Ray Dionandon, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. I spoke with them just minutes before Premier Doug Ford announced on Monday that most of the province was ready to enter stage three reopening. It's certainly not the first time we've heard an apology from Justin Trudeau while he's been Canada's Prime Minister. On Monday, he said sorry for failing to recuse himself from his government's decision to award a contract to We Charity to manage a $900 million student volunteering program. Trudeau has been a big supporter of We Charity. And we also recently learned that both his mother and brother have been recipients of nearly $300,000 of combined speaking fees at WE events. The WE charity controversy is now being investigated by the Ethics Commissioner, a third such scenario for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. On Tuesday, Fightback strategy panelists weighed in on the latest developments. I was joined by Charles Bird, managing principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. It was a little eyebrow raising uh, to read about. Um the, the monetary benefits that his family received through the charity and the, uh, the for-profit uh, Midawi uh, organization. And, um, you know, I, I don't think, I think the apology will be widely accepted by Canadians, but, but I do think that the Prime Minister needs to pay attention to decision-making moving forward. Um, and that we discussed that there was a wide degree of latitude by the public for the Prime Minister making decisions that were, are really quite um, unprecedented uh, in our times in terms of um, measures that were taken to close uh, our economy down to to control the spread of the pandemic and then subsequent payments out to support Canadians. And moving forward uh, with a trillion dollar deficit, I I think that there will be um, a a requirement for the Prime Minister moving forward to to be a bit more diligent in how these decisions are being made. And, And I think that if he moves forward recognizing that, I think Canadians will be forgiving. John, your thoughts? It reminds me of the song, Jane, Sorry, Not Sorry, um, in, in that, you know, um, he's sorry, but, but is he really sorry in a sense that why didn't he say and apologize, you know, when it first became apparent that something, you know, foolish like, like you know, being caught with, with um, you know, giving money to an organization where your family was, was getting payments from. I think, you know, to Karen's point about apologies, and yeah, I think some Canadians will accept it, and I think it's better to apologize than not to apologize. And as we know, some political leaders, you know, in their careers never apologize, and they just refuse to apologize, and they just barrel forward uh, and hope that the subject changes and, and what have you. We've got a, a leader in, in Justin Trudeau who does the opposite, who tends to apologize a, a lot. Uh, and in some cases, apologizes, I think, after the fact, after, as, as Jagmeet Singh says, after he's been caught. And I think that level of apology sometimes rings hollow with, with the Canadians. And I think we're sort of seeing that uh, initially with this Angus Reid poll that shows a bit of a dip in his popularity, albeit early days uh, in this particular scandal. But, but he had a five-point drop in, in his popularity just over the last week or so. Uh, so I think this thing has some legs, and, and, and apologizing is important, but it's also the timing of it. Uh, and then to have you know the, the finance minister who, 
I think, also said that there was a perceived conflict with respect to his daughter working mm-hmm. for We uh, in coming up with a tweet literally an hour after the prime minister apologized. Uh, you know, the reporters, I thought, had it right when they asked him the question, how many times do you have to apologize before Canadians start believing or start not believing in your apologies? And that's, I think, the, the challenge that this prime minister faces. Charles, uh, what about you? And you are a strategist for the Liberals. Is this is this the Prime Minister's personality speaking, or is this was this the right thing to do to say I'm sorry once again? Uh, I think this was a screw up of the first order. I mean, if it were any more of a dog, it would have fleas. Um, it is uh, the kind of situation that no government wants to face. First off, it's July, so there's a lot of people who are just dialed out and really not watching. Second, Stephen Harper never apologized for anything, so I think most Canadians find it refreshing that we actually have a Prime Minister who's willing to admit his faults. But this is a pretty serious episode, and I think it's just another casualty of COVID in as much as a lot of decisions were taken very quickly without adequate foresight. I will say, in classic fashion, Andrew Scheer came out and said, oh, it's criminal activity. And then Pierre Poilev, uh, the conservative finance critic, came out and said that, that Trudeau is a dictator. And it just speaks to classic overreach. And as I've said many, many times before, the best thing Pierre Trudeau, uh, Justin Trudeau has going for him is the fact that conservatives hate him so much because it just skews their judgment each and every time. Our Tuesday strategy panel, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Toronto Office of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Karen Stins, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. No other demographic has been harder hit by COVID-19 than Canadians over the age of 75. Outbreaks in long-term care and retirement homes have been responsible for 18% of COVID-19 cases and 82% of related deaths. By contrast, care provided to seniors in their own homes by Bayshore Healthcare providers has been virtually COVID-19 free. Tragically, COVID-19 has proven that home care is not just a better experience. It has had vastly better health outcomes with this disease. On Tuesday, I was joined by Maureen Charlebois, Chief Nursing and Clinical Officer at Bayshore Healthcare. We're very proud of the fact that our teams uh, pulled together when and when needed and that we acted promptly to really provide the best possible safe uh, place for our patients, clients to receive care in their homes and for our healthcare workers to work in a safe environment. I do want to address uh, the difference between in-home care versus long-term care, uh, but give us a little bit of a history over the recent months when COVID-19 arrived, uh, what did Bayshore Healthcare do? Uh, what, what steps of action did you take to ensure that you weren't, br- weren't bringing COVID-19 into the homes of your clients? My top priority was the safety and well-being of our staff and clients. So even before the pandemic was called, we immediately uh, assessed our infection prevention control measures 
as well as we looked at any enhanced measurements that we need to put in place to uh, safeguard both our clients and our our staff. You know, at that time, we didn't know what we were dealing with. And so to err on the side of caution, we put in full precautions. So that meant that anyone that was, you know, at risk of COVID-19, even if they were asymptomatic, which means they had no symptoms, but they, let's say, had traveled outside of Canada, we would have our staff enter the home, your home, uh, in full PPE. And that was, as I said, even before the pandemic uh, was called and even before we received some guidance as to what to do, we just knew what was clinically necessary and what was required to create the safest environment. And I would say it really was a godsend because that has positively contributed to our very low rate of COVID-19 clients in the home as well as staff in the home. What we also did was uh, create what I call the safety mentorship program, and that was to provide additional training and education to our uh, frontline healthcare workers and to our clinical managers who actually lead them um, across uh, Canada at the local level uh, to ensure that everyone knew how to use, you know, their uh, mask and gloves and gowns properly to uh, to avoid cross contamination or any risk of of uh, spread of COVID nineteen. And again, I think that made a significant difference. And our goal there was zero harm to our patients, zero harm to our staff. Amazing. What do you think went wrong in long-term care? How was it that it became so dangerous uh, for the residents? The challenge is that the COVID-19 is a nasty little virus and it spreads like wildfire. And so where there is congregate settings uh, and it really in, in any institution, it does create an environment uh, conducive for the virus to spread. Unlike the home where home care, um, you know, is the safest because uh, essentially you have more the one-to-one uh, um, you know, c- uh, patient to staff member, and as well, you know, you're receiving these services in your home, and you know who has come in and out of your home. You also are able to do the additional um, sanitation that's necessary through effective cleaning and that, and that's not like, you know, our institutional um, other areas where care is provided. Maureen Charlebois, Chief Nursing and Clinical Officer at Bayshore Healthcare. For more information, go online to bayshore.ca. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio, and here are some of the best calls of the week. Brian in Mimico called with his less than flattering opinion of Justin Trudeau. All you have to do is look good, be entertaining, you'll get away with anything and everything. Oh, did I do that? I'm sorry. 
who wants a selfie. It's pathetic what Canadians allow this smooth-talking actor to get away with. Barry from North York phoned on Monday to say he thinks it's too early to go to stage three reopening. Look what happened in Nova Scotia and PEI. They thought they were finished with it. One guy goes to the States, comes back, and then he lives in Nova Scotia. And as you know, guy from PEI, his friend comes, visits him in Nova Scotia. And now there's five cases in PEI because of that. Mm-hmm. It spreads really quickly. I know. And I also was on social media the other day in this this guy said that he had it and he had a mask and he washed his hands and he was physical distancing, but somehow he got it because I guess he wasn't careful. I don't know. It's just, you know, it just, I just think it's, it's just too soon. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dick in Thornhill who phoned about the news that indoor visits will soon be allowed in long-term care homes. We're so elated that um, this will be opening up so we can go in there and take care of our, um, our dad right now. We went in there last week in a bit of frustration of the, of the hospital, uh-huh. and we got in there to see him. You know, he was so much elated to see us. He would like to see us more uh, because we, we do have the virtual check uh, uh, two or three times a week. And that is not satisfying to him. He just want to see us instead of having the virtual check. That does it for today's best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416 416- 367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.